So could we welcome John as he comes? Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Saints. Uh, this evening, we are on uh, our seventh stop, and uh, it's such a blessing, and uh, how it all ends. Boy, we might have a non-technical evening. That's all right. Uh, we've been looking at uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 6, and we looked at uh, the Lord's Prayer, Thy Kingdom Come, then we moved right into Matthew 24, where Jesus continued that exposition of how the kingdom was going to come, and he gave the outline of the book of Revelation. We saw that, and basically the book of Revelation could be summarized if we had to use the Word of Life one-sentence description for a chapter for a one-phrase or sentence description of a book. The book of Revelation is how it all ends, and I really think about how the Lord's Prayer ends. It says, for thine, God's, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Everything is about God. And, and as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, until all things are delivered over by the Son to the Father, that he might be all in all. And so that's how it all ends, that God the Father is all in all. But this evening, from the book of Revelation, we're looking at just what it means to God, especially God the Son, that we are called to live as citizens of heaven so we're citizens of heaven while we're living on earth. Jesus' main occupation right now is individually checking on all of us, regularly, systematically, deeply prompting us to live like citizens of heaven. That's the only reason he left us here, and that's what he wants us to do. So in Revelation 1, we saw that the same outline that the whole Bible follows. Genesis 1 and 2 is about God the Creator. Uh, Genesis 3 through Revelation 5 is about God the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. By the way, God the Creator is Jesus Christ also. Remember, through him are all things made that are made and all of that. So we know Jesus is a Creator. He is the Redeemer. And then from 6 to 22 that we saw all those trends for, we see that he is the judge. And we know that from John 5, because in John 5, Jesus said, God the Father has committed all judgment to me, the Son. And then all those people, his detractors, were standing there, and he says, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. And this is one of the greatest statements Jesus ever made. I, I love it. He looked at him, he said, all that are in the grave are going to hear my voice and are going to come forth. Wow. And, and every time we get to a graveyard... I just think about that, that there is only one person in the universe that can speak and you know how, how people go to dust in the tree roots, especially in those old you know, European and New England cemeteries, the tree roots go through and the process goes that probably, and all those people buried at sea and all the people that are being blown up right now in Ukraine, they, I mean you can never gather their pieces together, but God is going to re-corporeolate them. I wonder if that's a word. Make their body back together instantly as he speaks. I mean, it's amazing. So we want to see him as our creator. Uh, he said that to, at the moment, the most powerful entity on earth. The Roman Empire uh, has still not been excelled in some of the things they've done. I mean, they're... There are functioning aqueducts that they built 2,000 years ago that still work. In fact, the one that went into Constantinople or Istanbul today was actually still working until some crazy, a few years back, dynamited it because they heard there was gold from the Roman Empire in it, and they dynamited some of the, the uh, kind of long passes that it was taking coming into town to see if they could find the gold. I mean, and that empire symbolized power you could not resist. And so right in the heart of it, God planted his church. And the Lord wanted them to learn how to live through the darkness of pagan rulers, pagan religions, of even horrific cults. That's why 1 John is so much about testing the spirits, whether they're of God, and how to know who's really a saved person. When you lived in Rome in the first century, there was a counter to Christianity group 
that actually came out of, uh, it was Mithraism, and it came out of kind of the Persian area. The initiates would go to these secret meetings to be washed by the blood of the Son of God. And when they were washed in the blood of the Son of God, they were born again. Being washed in the blood of the Son of God was to go down into a, a catacomb-like place, down deep underground, and a bull was strapped into this thing, and it was slit while it was alive so its hot blood would come across the people who would stand beneath there in an orgiastic, that's negative, ceremony. They're doing all kinds of stuff down there as that hot blood is going on them, and that event made men and women born again by the blood of the Son of God. So that's why casual Christians couldn't walk down the street and say, hey, I've been born again. They say, well, I've been born again too. How were you born again? I was born again by the blood. Oh, me too, by the blood of the Son of God. Me too. No, you went, which Son of God? Is your Son of God, Mithras, were you in an orgy? See, Christians didn't just slap everybody on the back that said the right buzzwords. They questioned them. Do you remember Paul got questioned? Paul? He wrote half the New Testament. They said, thank you for the message. We'll talk more tomorrow after we study to make sure everything you said matches up with the Scripture. And that's why we all should be Berean Christians. But it was very hard for the gospel to go in this darkened empire because Satan was pulling out all the stops with all these cults and with all this persecution. So Jesus comes back in the far right to check how the church is doing. And so what we're doing is we're excavating what he said. And we're using a simple method. Uh, by the way, uh, you all heard of Rick Warren. How many of you have heard of Rick Warren? Everybody's heard of Rick Warren. I mean, he's one of the best-selling Christian authors of all time. Uh, my dear pastor and mentor friend John MacArthur said, Rick Warren's best book in fact, the only book he thinks is good that Rick wrote was his first one. Do you know what his first book was? When he was just a struggling Southern Baptist pastor, do you know what he wrote? He wrote a book on Bible study methods, and he identified the 12 Bible study methods that are most needed by the church to follow. That's actually the title of the book, Bible Study Methods. And number one is devotional method. And I read his book long ago. In fact, I've taught through it several times to groups. You know, it's a great thing to have your church to learn all 12 Bible study methods, but not just to learn them, to have them learn them to actually start a group and start doing it. And so I just am so simple. I thought the first one was so good. I just have stayed with that one because it's the one that everybody can adopt. We should all be in a lifelong journey surveying the whole Bible. I mean, like... Um, uh, Howie Hendricks used to say, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, he said, you don't want to get to heaven someday and run into Habakkuk and say, hi, Habakkuk, uh, I'm Jim, uh, where are you from? And he says, uh, from the Bible, and he goes, oh. And he said, I wrote a book, and you go, oh, I never got to read the whole thing, but I'm glad you're here in heaven, you know. And Howie Hendricks used to use that to remind us we should be mastering the whole Bible. Because every word of God is pure, and, and all scriptures are given, breathed out by God, and they are the only thing that can transform us on the inside. Uh, for four years, Bonnie and I were spiritual mental health care providers with the Christian Medical Dental Association's Extension and Education Department, and we would go. They actually flew us every year to a secret location where they had high security where a minimum of seven to eight to nine hundred missionaries who all worked in Muslim, repressed, closed, limited access, whatever you want to call it. I mean, we had, we had doctors from North Korea, from Cuba. We had them from China, multitudes from China and Tibet and everywhere else you can think of in the world that is difficult for the gospel. And hundreds of them would convene in these secret locations, and they would re-up their licensures so they kept up on the latest in, you know, whatever they were in, you know, the, the urological this or the uh, hematological that, you know what I mean? And, and because they weren't in America, they were off in the Himalayas somewhere, they came 
annually to get recertified in some aspect of their, you know, uh, of their practice. And usually all of them wore many hats because they were in these little hospitals. Well, they told us that they came with, with the battle scars of spiritual warfare and of, you know, all the stuff that's going on, plus the hardships of being in a closed country and, and everything else. I mean, Bonnie's, when she would meet with the women, they'd talk about the fact that in their country you can't even sing out loud, and so they had to sing in the shower with your face under the water so no one could hear you. That's the only way you could sing because their country didn't even have windows, you know, glass in their windows. It was one of those poor countries. But the reason I say that is when I would address these people, and I got to address them, you know, once or twice a day through the two weeks, and I would teach them the Bible, and then we'd do Q&A. And I told them, I said, I know all of you are medical doctors, but I happen to be dispensing the only thing that can work inside your mind. Drugs can affect chemically, but can't fix, renew, transform, and, and utterly change a person's internal, non-material part. And I said, I dispense that, just like you do, except I'm going to be your pharmacist this week. I'm going to be dispensing the Word of God. And I'm going to talk about that, and that's Mike when I'll get buzzed a little bit later. But okay, so what you do is you write a title for every chapter, you find the lessons, and you note them, but most of all, you make this prayer. So let's just go through this, and let's practice it. And, and uh, Chris, the other, you better turn that clock down on there, or I'll never stop tonight. I have totally depended on that clock, and it's not there. So that means we're starting at zero right now. I mean, uh, okay, here's my journal. And this is where we left off this morning before the concert, but I didn't want some of you to, because you were so excited about the concert, I didn't want you to miss it. Jesus is actively coaching me right now and always. So look in your Bible, and remember, it's like we're sitting at, at, uh, you know, at Panera, and we're having a Bible study. We all have our Bibles open, and we're all trying to find as many truths and principles and, and promises from God's Word, and we're in verse 12. And I turned to see the voice, and I saw the seven golden lampstands, and one like the Son of Man, clothed with his garment down to the feet, and he had this golden band, and then all those other descriptions that I went through with you. Why is Jesus dressed like that? Did he not make it to the Dillard Spring Sale? I mean, what is the deal? Nobody dresses like that. Oh, no, no. A few people dress like that in history. That's exactly the outfit of the high priest. And if you know the Old Testament, if you've really read some of those hard-to-read parts, like Leviticus, you know that the priests were actually the health inspectors of Israel. They're the ones that you get a little spot. You didn't go to the dermatologist at the Mayo in Scottsdale. You went to the priest, and the priest looked at that. They were actually health inspectors. They were totally involved with keeping the nation of Israel healthy. And boy, they were healthy. I mean, they still are healthy. I mean, it's amazing the longevity of Jews that don't even know the Lord just because of all their customs that are built in, packed into the Old Testament that they follow. But Jesus is dressed like the Old Testament highest health inspector. Why would he dress that way? Well, we all say, oh, it's so great, the great high priest of the church, whoever lives to make intercession for us. That's one aspect that the high priest does. What does Jesus go out of his way to emphasize in Revelation? His inspecting the health department. Yeah, he's interceding for us, but there's a lot less to intercede for if we will get more uncomfortable about sin. So his goal is he came around and looked at the comfort level of the church with sin, and it sickened him because five were basically sick churches, five of the seven. One, he gave only one warning to. He said, stop fearing. That's the Smyrnans, people of Smyrna. And to only one church did he say. Now, I'm so glad for that. You know what it means? It's possible to completely obey the Lord as much as it's humanly possible so he doesn't have, as he said it, I have nothing against you. I have nothing that I have to say. You're lax in it. You're coasting. You're whatever. But it was only one church out of seven. So Jesus is seeking how to help us best reflect him as lights in the world. That's why he's coming to tune us up. You know, some people are not reflecting the light. They're, they're like, oh, I shouldn't tell, but uh, 
Mike has been making so many funny things with me. I'll make one funny about Bonnie. When we were newlyweds, we were driving every day. We'd get up at 5 o'clock, leave at 5.30, and we'd drive downtown Los Angeles because Grace could only hire me half-time. I had to work half-time. Bonnie worked full-time, and I was still working at Grace Community. And so we would drive two hours in the traffic to downtown Los Angeles. I'd drop her off. I'd go do my half-day job. I'd pick her up. We'd go home. And one day we were sitting in the traffic jam after we'd eaten our breakfast in the car, after we'd read our devotional reading. We were reading a chapter in the New Testament aloud and discussing it in the car. And it was time for her to put on her makeup. And as we were somewhere, you know, halfway up the, the Harbor Freeway, I heard Bonnie, and I'll never forget this, she went, oh, no. And she went, she said, honey, the whites of my eyes are turning orange. She said, I think I'm getting sick. And I'll never forget this. I reached over. I said, check your eyes now. <laughs> you know that, st that powder that is inside the mirror thing that has a little a puffer? You know, Somehow the powder from the puff had gotten on the mirror, and it made her eyes look orange, and immediately made her feel sick. And, uh, and you know what? Jesus, what that reminded me of, it wasn't reflecting the image properly. Did you know Jesus looks at us? He said, you're not a good reflection of me, and I want to do something about it. So what does he do about it? Well, he is what I call our life coach. He knew right where John was. I think we don't realize... And in fact, some people pray like they're almost catching the Lord up. Hello, Lord, I'm here. I've lost my job. Uh, I'm in ill health. It's like catching him up. He knows right where we are. He knew where every member of the seven churches were. And he didn't just know where their physical body was. He knew where their heart and their mind and their, their, the, the desi deepest desires of their heart were. Spiritually. And the good news is Jesus reveals he'll help each of us all through life, not just help us to be all we want to be. You know, all these people have their um, dream houses when you're younger. I, I know that's not something we're into, but they all have these, their Pinterest boards of their bathrooms and, you know, their whatever. Jesus says, you're spending so much of your life and all you want to be I'm, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get your attention to make you start focusing on being all that I want you to be, all that I designed you to be, all that my goal is for you. I want you, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, and you can do anything. My father worked in, the, that was a question from Mike, he worked in the same building, plant three of General Motors in Lansing, Michigan, for 46 years. That's a little boring if you ask me. He didn't think it was boring. I mean, the UAW gave them so many breaks. I mean, they worked four minutes, and they had five off. You know, it was unbelievable, the UAW back then. And, and I, it wasn't quite that bad, but it was a lot. And, and my dad says, I'm not going to waste sitting around with the men all talking about what girl they found at what bar and what they did and when they dropped her off and how they're looking forward to the next time they find her at another bar. And so he packed into his little metal lunch pail, they used to call them, all the moody books that would fold, you know, those paperback kind, and he would fold them in, and he took a book every day, and, and there were enough UAW-mandated breaks, he could read whole books. And then he graduated beyond reading moody books, and he started reading, you know, the overview of the Bible. And then he thought, I want to learn Greek, and so he, he made his own Greek card. And you understand what I mean? And what he said is, I want to be all that he made me to be. Christ made me to be. He says, I want to understand how to teach the Bible. I want to understand how to serve him. So Christ's plan is simple. He said, just listen to what I'm saying here in Revelation and repent. What does that mean? Repentance is, if I'm going this way, I have a change of mind that I say, I don't think I should be going this way anymore, that leads to a change of direction in my life. And you know, it's not just one time we repent. Godly sorrow works repentance not to be repented of. I know that. And I know what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 7. But I'm saying 
Jesus is telling born-again Christians they need to keep repenting, listening to where they're falling short of being all he made us to be, and every time they hear his voice saying, ah, you're right, Lord, I agree. So no matter where we are now in the spectrum of obedience, Jesus has his plan to get us back on target. Some people are way far away. Other people are just slightly distracted, and we'll see that in the seven churches. But basically this, the whole description I just read to you of Jesus wearing that sash and the robe down to his feet and his eyes and everything is Jesus coming in what we would call as a doctor. Those, I mean, we don't have priest health inspectors anymore that look at our see if our skin rash is leprosy or, or see if the mold in our house you know, is enough to knock it down. We go to doctors. Well, Jesus gives a diagnostic report on the five sick churches. Five of them were sick. Ephesus was sick, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea. Thyatira, Jesus didn't say they're sick. He said, ah, you're on the edge of fearing and don't fear. Stop fearing, actually, is literally what he said, and, and he said that Philadelphia was great. So Jesus can say that because he has compassion. He feels our fears. In fact, if you study in the Gospels and look at Jesus' emotions, do you know what his most frequent emotion is? Compassion. Do you know what compassion is? The Greek word is splanknoi. You know what that meant? It means to viscerally, here, to feel in your, your deepest part of your being, you feel it. Jesus felt for us. When it says he was moved with compassion, when he saw the people like sheep without a shepherd, it didn't mean he just said, oh, they have problems. You know, no, he went, hmm. And that's how he is now. Revelation 1, 13, Jesus examines us as a priest physician. And that's when he says, I'm the son of man, he says, well, let's look at what he says. My wife always reminds me of this. In the early days when I used to teach, and let's turn to Hebrews 2. When I used to teach the young people, and by the way, Bonnie gets the award. I think she has sat through every single one of my messages, which are numbering like 4,200 now, except for a few times I let her off to have a child. <laughs> but she had to be back within, you know, the next service, you know. Uh, but I let her off. Uh, but look at this, Hebrews 2.14, because I used to say, you know what it says in Hebrews 2.14, and when Bonnie started uh, being in the back of all my classes, especially smaller ones, I'd see her go, they don't, they don't, honey, don't assume that. So look at Hebrews 2.14, see what it says. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part in the same. That's what it means to be the son of man. That he through death might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now look at verse 18 of Hebrews 2. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. Wow. Now keep going to chapter 4 and look at verse 14. Seeing then we have a great high priest. Oh, there's that great high priest, uh, you know, the health inspector, the, the body inspector, the food inspector. That's what they were in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, that's what I am still. But not to make sure you don't eat you know, pork and shrimp and that you follow the whatever diet. He says, I'm looking at your spiritual health and diet. So verse 14, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize. See? He feels. The word sympathize is one of very close. It's a transliteration of the Greek word. The Greek word is sympatheo. Sum, S-U-M, means with. Patheo means to feel. So to sympatheo means to with feel. Or we call it compassion, feeling someone's pain. So Jesus... Uh, who cannot, verse 15, sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted. Boy, that's a hard verse to swallow. Most people think, uh, Jesus could never be tempted with what I just was tempted with. In fact, I'm too ashamed to even say what I was tempted. I mean, I wouldn't want anybody to know, and certainly Jesus would never have been like that. Yes, he was. Let me give you an example. Do you remember when the devil, Matthew 4, came 
and met Jesus out in the wilderness when he hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights and had no food or water. And he's out there in the habitat of the demons. The wilderness is always the habitat of the demons. What were the three temptations? Well, the one that is most connected to this is the devil said, hey, you hungry? Why don't you command those stones to be made bread? People go, oh, I've never been tempted for that. Yes, you have. What is bread? It's something that fulfills a legitimate appetite or desire or hunger. We were born with hunger for food. The devil wanted Jesus to satisfy a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. Ah. Nearly every young person, except for a few, are constantly faced with the barrage to fulfill legitimate sexual desires in an illegitimate way. When Jesus said, I was in all points tempted like as you are, he can look at that, the guy I told you about this noon, the student from Wales, who had a legitimate sexual desire but wanted to satisfy it in an illegitimate way, a, a homosexual way instead of a heterosexual way. Can Jesus relate to that? You bet. He said, devil did the same thing to me. It was just as intense. He said, I have a legitimate, because he was 100% human. Remember, that's what the, the deity of Christ, that they had to hammer out at all those huge councils the church had. Jesus wasn't half and half, half God, half man. He was all God and all like us. So that's why he can say, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted just like we are. Verse 16, so what should that make us do? Come boldly to his throne of grace. Find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Jesus feels our pains, our struggles, our weaknesses, our fears, and he's standing there waiting to help us every time, every time. It's not like he's absent. He's, I, I was sharing with someone. I was sitting right here. One of the services, someone came to me and asked me this great question. I said, do you remember Joseph and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife? What did, what did Joseph say to Potiphar's wife when she started pulling his clothes off? He said, oh, I can't do that in the sight of God. And Potiphar's wife was looking all around. She thought, I didn't know anybody else was in the room. See, to a godly believer... God is in the room all the time, and, and we don't want to offend him. Okay, so that was number 15. Um, I'm starting to skip, you can tell, because I just find dozens of these. Jesus is the great I am. Notice what it says in verse 17 of, uh, oop, got to get out of Hebrews and get back to Revelation chapter 1, and look at verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid, What? I am. Okay? Note the sequence. John saw, he fell down as dead, Jesus laid his hands on him, and then says, do not fear. Then Jesus says, I am. Now, that must have been amazing to John because he's the I amer of the gospel writers. Remember, John is the one that records all the I am's in the gospel. And he finds eight more I am's in the book of Revelation. Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, who is and was, is to come, almighty, first and last, lives and was dead, have the keys of death and hell, and I'm the root and offspring of David. But what I like is, John was feeling the hand of the one that he tracked with closest all the way through the Gospel by John. Remember, Jesus reveals seven I am's in the Gospel by John. Not eight, not six, seven, a complete set. It's his perfection. I'm the bread of life. I want to sustain you. You don't let me, you'll only be unsatisfied your whole life. Boy, that's what we're looking at. Look out the window at this world we're living in. It's a whole bunch of unsatisfied people. They just want to have that better car. They want... They'll kill someone for better shoes, you know, those expensive, famous ones. 
they'll, they'll lose their family to get a better house further up the hill or closer to the water, whatever is the big thing wherever they live. Light of the world, he illumines me. We go through life with boldness. We know why we're here. We know exactly what we're supposed to be doing. We know exactly where we're headed. We know that we're invulnerable until the Lord is through with us. We don't live in fear. We don't live in unsatisfied darkness. But you reject that? Apart from him is only impenetrable darkness. Do you remember what it says that hell is going to be? They're going to be suffering the vengeance of eternal fire in the blackness of darkness forever. You know what it's like to be falling in a bottomless pit, tumbling, and expecting any moment to and you never hit the bottom, and you're in darkness, but you're suffering the searing pain of everlasting fire, the wrath of God, when you could have just said yes to the light of the world, that's going to be what's cutting deepest in all these people. Because you know what the Bible says? That God, Acts 17, is within an arm's length. So I'm right now an arm's length away from that microphone. That means I could grab it at any time. I'm right here. God says, I am that close to every human on earth. You know, people always say, oh, what about the, you know, the aborigines or the, the pygmies or the Eskimos or the Native Americans? They didn't get the gospel. Well, better than getting the gospel, they got within an arm's length of the creator himself. He says, I'm that close to everybody. And you know what Paul said in Mars Hill? He said, and God is doing everything he can in hopes that they will grope for him. You know what groping is? You feel around in the dark. You feel around the dark, you bump into something, and you say, what is that? I want to know. And God said, that's all you have to know. And he says, I'll reveal myself to you. But he's done that to everybody. And by the way, people don't go to hell because they've never heard of Jesus. Let's get rid of that myth. People go to hell because they're sinners. And they never tried to find a way out of this sin. And they, God was doing everything, asking them to bump into the only hope. And he said, I stayed an arm's length away from you. I was right. You could have reached out to me at any time. I went through life right next to you, just like people that are too close to you in life that you try and get away from. And I've been going through life right by you. And you never sought me to satisfy. You sought everything else, not me. You never let me light you. You never let me open the door. He admits us to life as the door of the sheep. Apart from him is hopeless, being shut out. He cares for us. Without him, we wander. He's the resurrection of life. Bonnie and I were sitting one day. Here's a great blessing, buzzing. Bonnie and I were sitting one day, eating dinner at Neuschwanstein, in between our missionary work and we ate dinner at the castle that Disney designed, Disney World is built after. That's a real castle that's in Bavaria. And we were in Neuschwanstein, and we were at the place where you eat, looking right at the floodlit castle. And we got there in the restaurant, and we brought our Bible, as we always do, and we sat there reading our chapter that we read, one verse, and we talk about it, and she read a verse, and then I read a verse, and we talked about it. And we looked at each other, and the food came, and we ate and looked at each other and read the verses and talked. And after about an hour and a half, this couple walks over to our table. Now, we didn't know anybody else was in the restaurant, you know, when you're in love and everything, love is blind. And so, and we were way off in the corner, didn't think we were bothering anybody. And this couple walked up to our table. What a couple. She was wearing a full-length, pure white, real fur that went from up around her ears just below to the floor, not touching the floor, but it was perfectly tailored for her, this beautiful white fur coat. But it didn't close in the front. And she had around her neck something clear, something red, something green. Something clear, something red, something green. And the closer this walking polar bear coat came, <laughs> it clinked. There were so many stones, and it was a necklace. It was more than one necklace. It must have been heavy. It's amazing. She must have gone to finishing school to not, you know, have that make her lean over. It was so much. 
So she's standing there, and then the guy with her was unbelievable. Every part of his clothing that had an edge, see I have an edge here, I have an edge here, I have an edge here, had actually a quarter-inch glistening gold. He had gold edges of everything. Pocket, shirt, gold. Lots of other stuff. So they clink up to our table. I thought it was, you know, like they were numbered and we were at the wrong one. I said, yes, sorry. They said, uh, we have a question for you. And I said, a question for us, because they had this little French accent, you know. Yes. The, the man said, we, we would like to know why you, you are so tr tranquil. I said, what? Tranquil. I said, you... You walked over from wherever you're sitting to ask us why we're so tranquil. He said, may we sit with you? I said, yeah. You know, I mean, I'd never seen anything like that before or had anybody do that. So <clears throat> they sat at our table, you know, and I said, they said, why are you tranquil? I said, well, who are you? Oh, he says, my father was a Lutheran minister. He says, my name is Hans Guggenbuhl. I said, yeah, what do you do? He said, I'm the, the director of the European Common Market Bank in Strasbourg. I said, oh, so you're the head banker of Europe. Mm. I said, who's, who's the polar bear? You know, uh, you know the, <laughs> I didn't really say. I was very polite. They were the sweetest people I think I'd ever seen in Europe. And he says, this is Manisa. I said, Manisa? Oh, her full name is Manisa Rizvisha Pallavi. He said, you know her as the Shah of Iran's daughter. I said, oh, the Shah of Iran, the one that ran off with 100 billion and caused the whole Iranian, you know, revolution and all of our captives and everything. I said, that's his daughter. I didn't say that middle part. Uh, <laughs> what I knew was that meant that they were either uber millionaires or more. So they introduced themselves and they said, why are you tranquil? What do you think they were asking us? They were asking us why we, from their perspective across the dining room, were sustained, illumined, admitted into real life, totally aware that Christ cared for us, provided us life, guided us, and was filling us, and actually the Holy Spirit was overflowing us enough that they felt the peace. That's what tranquil meant to them in French, peaceful. Because they had money dripping from them and did not have illumination, peace, security, hope, joy, etc. Did you know the only reason that we're left here on earth is wherever we are to share the gospel? You know what the good news is? Uh, they, they wrote us a letter. By the way, we invited them to church and they came. They came. I mean, those kind of people, they just, oh, where are you from? Okay, we, our jet goes there. You know, they just fly anywhere they want. They don't go through customs. You know, they, like that. So I said, oh, I'm on staff at Grace Community Church with John MacArthur. Oh, oh my aunt, the Shah's sister, lives in Santa Barbara. We can fly into her by her house. You know, they came right to church and heard the gospel. They wrote us a letter. And it, by the way, it was on, I've only seen this a couple times in my life. And some of you might be that wealthy. I don't know. See, I can talk like this because I don't know any of you. Hardly, other than Mike and Bonnie and a couple others. But the rich people have paper that is not like our paper. It's made with cloth or something. And it's different. It's soft and it's thick. And, and they sent us a letter on this kind of paper that's embossed. And they even put gold in their, in their stationery, you know. It might be gold leaf. But, man, I have leaves. I just don't have gold leaves. You know what I mean? And so, and, and so they communicated with us, and they, they effusively said, thank you for sharing our table with them. And they came to Grace Community Church and listened to, you know, John speak for 75 minutes like he normally does. But they never, I guess the privacy of their heart, they never shared with us that they rejected or accepted it. But, you know, that's not what we're responsible for. We're just supposed to go into all the world and proclaim or to just reflect. And that was one of the few moments, and that's what buzzes me, Mike, that you can actually reflect Christ enough that someone that he's stirring their heart that's going like this 
groping out there trying to bump into something, says, maybe they know how to get to him. So that's what we're supposed to be ready for. Okay, uh, we now have four minutes. Now we're getting to Revelation 2 and 3. I'm so excited for that. Jesus committed to make us useful all our days. He's our redeemer. As I said, he wants to be our coach. By the way, uh, my Bible study group, my small group that I went through this with, I went through, it took me, at this rate, it took me two years to go through all of chapter 1, 2, and 3, discussing it with them and applying it. And it's a book. It's called Christ's Last Words to His Church, Revelation 1 to 3. And for those of you that like paper books, our ministry sells it, and every book, I think that they, they make $5 on every book, and that takes us one-fourth of a mile uh, flying on an airplane, but you know what I mean. And then also e-books. Uh, Amazon sells them like mad, and uh, I still can't believe they sell those. And that's everything about what Jesus wants us to do with our life and how to apply it. This is my dissertation, and I saw Mr. Hazard is my guard here, Mr. Hazard, the Duke of Hazard. Are you here? Oh, he is. He's back there guarding. I saw him actually reading that. This is my dissertation from Dallas Seminary. It took me 10 years to write. It's everything about prophecy, and I cover even all of the minor prophets and everything else. And again, that's uh, paper and, and on Amazon. And there's our website. Uh, if you go to YouTube, it's just you type into YouTube DTBM. And that's, that is, uh, and there's even a button on there somewhere that they tell you whenever I post something. And everywhere I speak, anywhere in the world, within about a week, it just starts showing up uh, online on YouTube. And what's amazing is um, when Bonnie and I meet people, uh, she was just witnessing to a group of kids when we were in Greece, all these five little teenagers, and, and they said, uh, we want to know more. And she says, well, you can see it on YouTube. They I mean, their phones took them 10 seconds to get their phone out. They got to YouTube. She said, D, T, and they put it in, and they turned their phone, and that opening video, what God says, they were all watching in 10 seconds. That's how connected our world is. It's amazing, but that's our website. But before we go, any sin, this is what, I'll summarize Revelation 2 and 3 for you and Tenero with me. Any sin not forsaken in the life of a believer, can become deadly. You know, we don't think sin is as bad as God thinks it is. And so God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, especially God the Holy Spirit, is so grieved and quenched by sin that Jesus came down to work with his body and to seek their health. You know, with COVID, if you got a headache and fever and runny nose, they used to, do you remember when this was everywhere? You, you were assaulted with it in bathrooms, uh, you know, in airports. They just, it was just like, you're going to die if you're not careful. And these are the complications. You might get pneumonia or acute respiratory system or kidney failure or death. And the virus will spread before if we were a tenth as worried about sin as the world was for the last however long about viruses. Well, what chapter 2 and 3 is, Jesus starts going through and doing a medical report on each church. And from each church, he focuses, by the way, on the heart when he's right here. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, Ephesus appeared to be thriving. It was easily the largest church in Asia Minor. Paul pastored there three years. He explained the scriptures every day, it says in Acts 19. He answered their questions. He taught them how to live sanctified lives. But when Paul moved on from Ephesus, he left Timothy behind, his spiritual son. And just before being exiled to Patmos, John lived there. John ministered there. Mary, Jesus' mother, was there. I mean, there was a galaxy of superstars there. But you know what? Ephesus appeared to be thriving, but the Lord said they had heart disease. Now, oh, we have one more minute. That is the first thing you would see in Ephesus. That's the temple of Diana. And Jesus had planted his greatest church right there in the shadow of Satan's temple. That thing was the size of a city block, 10 stories high. It was the largest building of the ancient world. Not the largest structure, the pyramids, you know, the Great Wall of China. They're all kinds of big things. That was the largest building, 
10 stories high, a city block, covered with gold. It was unbelievable, but that's not all. Just to have a church in Ephesus, that was the miracle. Ephesus was like the occultic capital of the world. It was like the, the greed capital, because if you wanted the favor of the gods, you brought a gold offering to that place. So it was just running with gold. But the gods said that anywhere within the grounds of the Temple of Diana, no one could be prosecuted for anything. So you had the worst dregs of humanity that kept themselves within the shadow of that temple. It was a haven for demons, for sin, for derelicts, for anything you can think of. And Jesus said, I want a church there. And that became the site of the largest church of the ancient world. And that church... What we'll learn about it is, Jesus says, hey, I'm the one that designed your DNA. I know who you are. I know where you live. I even know which body of Christ you're a part of. And I've been tracking your diet. I know who your pastor teacher is. I hold in my hand who your pastor teacher is. He said, not only that, I'm recording your life. I do your CV, the course of your life. You know, your resume, they now call them CVs, uh, curriculi vitae, okay? That means course of life. And he said, I'm constantly updating. I know all about you. And I also notice when you start coasting, when you slack off, when you just go through the motions, that's when he says, you have a fear me. You've left. You've walked away from or released loving Jesus chiefly and foremost. It's amazing that these people had come to the place that Jesus wasn't first. Jesus found something wrong with the Ephesian saints. Their blood pressure was up, their arteries were clogged, their hearts had experienced a gradual buildup of other things. See, we like to say we love Jesus most, but most among many things. Jesus said, I didn't say I want you to love me most. He said, I want you to have what's called first love. Have you ever seen a couple that's in love? They stand out. I mean, it's like they're oblivious. The world is in slow motion around them, and they're just locked on to whoever it is they love. And they think about them. If they're not talking to them, they want to talk to them. If, if, they're, if the person's away, they're, they're texting them or they're on the phone with them, and then they're thinking and counting down to how long till they see them again. That's first love. She said, do you remember when you were like that with me? When we first got married, Bonnie and I moved to Grace Community Church. We were standing there with three or 4,000 people. John MacArthur was leading communion. He told us all to stand. I was a brand-new newlywed. We had just gotten there Saturday night. We went to church Sunday morning. I was still nervous about being a husband and everything. I was standing there, and, and John started leading us in, you know, when I survey the Wonders Cross, and I glanced at Bonnie because she wasn't singing. Her nose was all red. Her eyes were all red. Tears were not just running here. They were running like five of them down her cheeks, both sides. And I went, what did I do wrong, honey? You know, I'm just so sure I'd forgotten her birthday or, you know, our anniversary or something. She said, I just can't believe how much the Lord has forgiven me. And I, I said, you're crying about that? I've been saved since I was six. I mean, I dealt with that a long time ago. It was still first unbelievable amazement that he loved me he loosed me from my sins he cleansed me he still loves me despite you know you understand what i mean do you remember those days some of you probably are like bonnie and you're still like that that's why at night you want to know what i do at night when i wake up i look over real quick to the other side of the bed and i'm sure i'm going to see a wing poke out you know because she's an angel she's not human honestly because she still has that first love. They didn't. He was no longer their supreme ruler of their lives. Their schedules didn't reflect Christ. Their concentration didn't reflect Christ. And what he said to them, and where we'll pick up tomorrow, is the bottom line. Jesus didn't take first place in their lives. Their heart didn't belong solely to him. The prognosis is always the same, and it's the same for every one of the seven churches. Even though there was nothing that Philadelphia had to repent of, the Lord says, when it's time, <coughs> repent. In fact, let's, let's read that. Look at verse 7. 
He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. This is chapter 2, verse 7. What the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So this first letter, verse 7 says, is addressed to all churches. Now, back up. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I'll come and quickly remove your lampstand unless you repent. What we're going to see, Lord willing, tomorrow is in every one of the churches, the bottom line was the same. The health inspector came. He found an individualized, a diagnosis, and a prescription for every church. Did you know that the seven churches represent, I believe, the seven types of Christians that are in every church? There are Ephesians that used to love the Lord that don't love them the same. There are Philadelphians that are absolutely keeping close accounts with the Lord, and there's everybody in between. And Jesus is still walking between all the churches and still walking around each of us, and he says the same thing to all of us. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that we would seek you first and your righteousness and let everything else be secondary to that. And I pray that in any way we have not sought you first today, not even worrying about all of our life, just today. I pray we'd remember that and repent and return back to that devotion, focus, and enthusiastic pursuit of you as our first love. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and all God's people said,